0: A podcast one production. When people are asked about the institutions they trust, they have a good long think. Do they trust politicians? No. Do they trust government? Sometimes. They certainly trust local government more than they trust state or federal because they're visible. They can be held accountable. Do they trust media? Well, public broadcasters, yeah, they tend to be trusted. Commercial broadcasters? Not as much. Yet everyone seems to trust their bank. Our banks have some of the very highest trust ratings we give to any institution. How much of that trust has been earned? And how much is our need to believe that banks are steady, stable, and trustworthy? G'day, I'm Mark Pesci. The coming next billion seconds are the most important in human history as technology transforms the way we live and work. On this second series, we continue our conversations with some of the brightest minds shaping that world, charting our path as we voyage into an incredible future. In this episode, we talk to finance futurist Andrew Davis about what banks are, what they're becoming, and how the trust they project may become their most important asset. In Trust We Trust, on this episode of The Next Billion Seconds. A few years ago, I started working closely with the World Bank. Now, the World Bank focuses on helping developing economies. And I was helping them specifically with their efforts to bring SMEs, that's small to medium-sized enterprises, bring them into the banking system. In most of the world... Businesses are too small for the very few banks in a country like Rwanda or Cambodia or Peru to care about those businesses. It's basically too expensive for those banks to work with them. So these businesses, they lose out on all of the benefits of banking, things like checking accounts and lines of credit, things that we take for granted. And so the World Bank works with a range of basically startup companies to help close those gaps between banks and SMEs. And a few years ago at a conference, one of these companies presented what they did. Now, when you wanna give a business a line of credit, you basically have to investigate the business and the bank will send someone out to maybe look at the books and to take a look at the business and they'll spend some time and some serious money evaluating the business and then figuring out what kind of line of credit they can offer that business. And for a small business in a small developing country, the amount of money that the bank is going to make on that line of credit is never going to be as much as it's going to cost them to do this analysis. But this company came up with a great idea. They realized that all you needed to do was to get the owner of that business to give permission for the bank to take a look at the mobile data that that business was using when they were using the web, maybe on the mobile, on their smartphone, when they were sending messages, all of that traffic. Because it turns out that you can analyze that traffic to know whether a person or a business is creditworthy. In other words, if there are a lot of messages being sent in the middle of the night, unless you're a baker, that probably indicates that you might be up to some shady stuff. Whereas if your messages happen during normal hours of the day, Probably your business is good, you're creditworthy, and the bank can issue a line of credit. And the difference here was phenomenal. Where it might cost a bank $50 or $100 to do that big investigation of a tiny business to find out whether they were creditworthy, this company could do the same analysis with the same degree of confidence for a dollar. That's a game changer because it means that a bank can now offer a line of credit to a range of businesses that they were previously unable to work with. Bring those businesses into the banking system, give them lines of credit, give them checking accounts, and get them integrated into the economy. Finance is going to change more over the next billion seconds because of innovations like that than it has in the last thousand years New technologies like smartphones, blockchains, cryptocurrencies, they're transforming the idea of banking into something that might look as simple as an app on your smartphone, or it might be as global as a commodities market where everyone is a player. Our guest understands where banks are going and spent a number of years guiding HSBC. Now, that's the biggest bank in the world, guiding HSBC toward a future of finance that looks very little like the banks we see today. Andrew Davis is a banker, a futurist, an innovator. Someone who is dragging that most stable and profitable of businesses, kicking and screaming into a future where trust becomes the key commodity. Andrew, tell me something about this moment in banking, because we think of banking as sort of being the same today
1: as it was yesterday, but that's, that's not really true, is it? No, not at all. Uh, and I guess, you know, the world of banking has mostly been uh, tied to this notion of branches, Physical presence where people can walk into the local branch, fill in forms, transact, get cash, and so on. And that's a very physical experience in multiple levels. And to your point in the introduction, we now have smartphones, we have apps, we have uh, really smart entrepreneurs all around the world who are thinking about the delivery of services digitally and the access to other digital uh, services to... Uh, complement that and it really then questions I guess some of these founding principles of what it means to be a bank and if I don't need branches to service a consumer then what does that mean for those organizations that have branches from a cost perspective from a compliance perspective what does it mean for those organizations that are structured in terms of organizational structure infrastructure um, policy regulation to, to operate perhaps in that environment, which today is less relevant. So, if we're thinking about
0: now a bank that doesn't have branches, and I think MeBank in Australia is a bank that actually specifically doesn't have branches, we're already starting to see some of those banks. What does that mean for me if I'm trying to get a loan from the bank or even trying to open an account? Mm often the bank will actually demand to see my sunny face to know that I'm a real person. So how does that then allow the bank to trust me and how can I trust a bank that I can't actually reach out
1: and touch? Sure. So in some markets around the world banks now allow you to take a photo of yourself or they'll send out a mobile banker to you and you take a photo standing next to the mobile banker. <laughs> right. So it's you know it's I guess it's a some degree of creativity here thinking about well ha- I've still got a requirement to fulfill, but, you know, how can I do it in a very different way? And I think the other issue also is around regulation. Uh, I've been in many situations with different banks where perhaps there's an overinterpretation of the regulation and the requirement. Or if the regulation is not prescriptive enough, then banks will err on the side of caution and make certain assumptions about what they need to do and what they can't do so there's a I think there's a, a regulatory opportunity here and we see in markets like Australia regulator uh, opening up uh, the environment to new entrants encouraging the adoption of new services with the uh, formation of sandboxes and so on open banking is a whole big topic uh, globally and that's that wave of change is coming here so in what's open banking so open banking is basically saying to the banks uh, and ultimately it'll It'll flow through to other sectors as well, health and utilities. But it's saying to the banks that you service your customer and maybe that relationship exists for many years. And that customer transacts with you on a regular basis and generates all sorts of data. But actually, that customer has the right to access that data. And if the customer asks to get that data, you have to be able to provide that to them. And not say, okay, well, you want 10 years of bank statements and it's a $2 per statement charge for us to go back and reprint those. It's 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 all about uh, acknowledging who is the owner of that data, who has access to it, and empowering the customer then to make use of that data to then actually identify better services in the market potentially from different providers.
0: So then if I'm working with a bank and the bank has to do this, this open data, this open banking thing, then I mm. can actually take the, say, 14 years of transaction records that I've generated in Australia and then present them to another organization, whether that's a startup or another bank, and say, look at here's here's my deal. Take a look at this. Use your best tools. Can you offer me a better deal? Or even maybe someday I'd hand it off to a kind of expert system, a kind of AI, and I'd say, okay,
1: help me be richer, help me optimize what I'm doing. Exactly. So now I think we'll see in the market the entry of providers that help consumers to compile and manage and privilege out that data. So, is
0: that then mean that some of the things that we look to our accountants and our financial advisors to do, that some of that is now going to leave in a bigger sphere because they're going to be working with and competing against not just all of this data, but all of these other
1: new ways of using that data? Yes, definitely. And so, I think this will be partly a challenge for consumers because it's great on one hand to say... Mr. and Mrs. Consumer, you've got all this data that's available to you, but where do I keep it? What do I do with it? Do,
0: <laughs> if you hand me all of my data, my first worry is going to be, okay, I need to keep this safe. How do I do well, that? Well, that's
1: right. So, you know, if I'm Commonwealth Bank, do I have to go out and buy 100,000 USB sticks now to present to customers who knock on my door wanting data? Or?
0: Well, but, the, but then... I guess even if you do have the USB sticks and I then take that USB stick away, I now have to worry about making sure that it doesn't get stolen, it doesn't get misused. I don't have identity theft being done with it because if you now have a a trail of my transactions, you can stalk me not just in the real world but online in all sorts of
1: ways. Yes, definitely. And so it's one thing for a consumer to have access to this, but actually Mm. um, what do I do with it and where do I keep it? Uh, and I guess there's a potential play for banks even uh, in, in that space. All right. But now,
0: if we have shiny new startup over here going, yes. Ooh, give us the data and we'll help you get richer. And I'm going to want to do that. How can I know that I can trust that
1: startup with my data? I think trust is a relative term. Um, <laughs> and I think trust is often challenged by other requirements around convenience, experience, mm. price, and so on. Uh, I think in many instances, the the view of trust is I'll trust something to work most of the time.
0: And I would say that for most situations, you're right. But when you're talking about your financial data, people tend to be quite careful around that and if we're heading into something that's a bit more wild westy i mean i can see that we can get a lot of really interesting things going on does that also mean there's going to be a lot of really nasty
1: train wrecks yes i think there's the potential for that um so in the future rather than getting these emails from nigeria about five million dollars of oil proceeds that need to be funded through my little account in Australia, will I get some other kind of scam saying, if you make available this data, we can suddenly do X or Y for you? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) So this is, yeah, no, I can see this as being the next frontier. You know,
0: it'll present itself like a financial service and an accredited financial service. But in fact, even if it does do those on the Mm. surface, Mm. underneath, it's doing something perhaps that's undermining you or undermining a market or even undermining a bank if there's enough data.
1: Yes, exactly. I mean, the organized crime is constantly pushing the boundaries. And banks are constantly trying to react to that and be at least keeping up, if not one step ahead.
0: Well, and this is an interesting thing because I've now seen sort of how the banks are starting to treat security differently. And banks are notoriously reticent mm-hmm. to talk about security in public. There's a number of reasons. They don't want to talk about having been robbed because it just mm-hmm. decreases confidence in the bank. But they also don't like to say, oh, we have great security because that basically puts a big target on them. And yes. There's people who take that as a challenge, So banks tend to not talk about this, but they do tend to spend a lot of money and a lot of time focusing on this. We've seen now over the last 50 years that the idea of robbing a bank has transitioned from someone walking in with some guns and maybe a safe cracker to now this idea that someone is going to get a large enough data set that they can fake the identity, oh, if they're lucky, of a bank employee – Right. Or if not, customers of the bank and then use that as a way in. Yes. So how does this then change the idea? I mean, we talk about the bank closing branches. Well, okay, you're not going to be able to rob a branch anymore. But if a bank only
1: exists online, does that then mean that the whole world can come a calling? Potentially. And I guess with... uh Uh, digital money as such, then, uh, you know, the ability to intercept something when it goes wrong is a lot harder. Mm. You know, in Australia now we have this new payments platform, which is all about real time transactions. Uh, I guess the whole topic about fraud and security is still being worked through in that regard. We, you know It's only early days. We haven't seen anything yet uh, pop up. And
0: just just on that note, so the new payments platform has been worked on for several years. It's yes. an initiative of the Reserve Bank. Yes. And it means that settlements, so that means that if I send you some money, you get it in about 15 seconds. right? Yes. Very, very fast. I immediately signed up for it because I knew it was coming. Hmm. But I also saw that within about 24 hours, someone had figured out a way to... You really can't call it hack it, but sort of probe it because people were being asked to use their mobile numbers mm. to identify their their accounts to yes. be able to transfer the money. And people were using it sort of as a reverse phone book and just sort of popping in a random phone number and seeing what name was attached to it. And that's, that's not a good thing. In fact, it's kind of forbidden by privacy laws in this country. Yep. But it was possible through the way they'd set the NPP up. And so you can see that... Anytime you try to make these payments easier and faster and just better for people,
1: that you're actually exposing them to other risks. Yes. Well, I guess uh, you try and address one issue or make one improvement, but straight away you bump into something else. And, you know, the world of digital is largely an unfamiliar territory for most traditional bankers. Um, Because, you know, in the context of MPP and smartphone apps, in many ways, you could say perhaps a telco better understands the risks than a bank does. And and yet, here's the thing. The reason that we live in a largely
0: computer-driven world is because… Fifty years ago, when the first mainframes came out, they were eagerly snapped up by all the banks because before that, and, and this is something that maybe a lot of people don't really get before that, banks kept physical ledgers. And there would be scores and scores and scores of bookkeepers physically keeping paper records of every transaction. And this is why a check would take a couple of weeks to clear mm-hmm. right because yes. you'd have to get the check at the branch and then it would be checked against the ledger and does it have enough money and then you can do the transfer and it's and it, it's it sounds quaint <laughs> to put it but of course then they got mainframes and we now have all these little you know for those of you who still use checks you still you still have those digital numbers on the bottom of the check so they can be read by the computer and all the accounting is done electronically and so in some ways although you say the banks aren't bankers aren't thinking digitally. In some ways, they're the reason that everyone else is thinking digitally.
1: Well, I think to your point, they helped to lay the foundations, but they didn't kind of, you know, the horse race started and they were still in the stalls and the rest of the world kind of took off. Uh, capitalizing on that foundation that they had created.
0: You know, and we're talking about a foundation of making IBM the largest company in Mm. the world and then all of the software that was needed. And then, of course, you get to the PC because the PC is a way that someone can use that mainframe from their desk in the bank. And so you really do get most of the modern era out of the fact that bankers needed computers because they needed to yep. stop writing things down exactly. in books. Exactly. Well,
1: look at SWIFT. SWIFT came about 40 odd years ago because banks used telexes for right, international So banks. SWIFT, for our listeners, if you've ever transferred money between
0: banks internationally, SWIFT is the mechanism that does that. Mostly these days. Well, this is an interesting point because Swift exists as a way for banks to be able to move money internationally, but it's also now, it's been for a number of years, a way to be able to prevent the wrong kinds of money. So basically money laundering, moving from one country to another. So you can think of it as a network, but it's also sort of almost a police force around
1: finance, right? Yes. Well, Swift has its own regulatory obligations in terms of the markets in which it can operate but also me i think it's for the banks on the endpoints of the swift network to be the to have the main responsibility around knowing the customer and understanding the transactions okay so we now have this idea that you have bankers you have computers
0: and that was all going well, and we got credit cards. Credit cards are basically only possible because you can process all of the mm-hmm. transactions associated by computers. So a lot of the modern finance world came along, and then the web came along. And this is the interesting thing, was that in some ways, although banks all had their own electronic banking sites, you had to get to PayPal, which was sort of, what, 97, 98, mm-hmm. to really get this idea of an electronic payment right? didn't come from a bank. came from something that was very specifically not a bank because the banks just weren't doing it. And why is it that the banks maybe had been so slow to even think about the capacity for digital payments?
1: I think they've perhaps underestimated the customer demand. And the customer demand came about largely from the explosion of the web Mm. and digital commerce on the web. And I think You know, the banks had this more traditional merchant credit card acquiring uh, lens that they were applying over that. So, in other words, they expected payments
0: to basically flow through credit cards rather than just sort of straight payments, which is, you know, and eBay became the category example. And then eBay bought PayPal for precisely this reason because it solved their
1: big problem. And I think the banks didn't anticipate why would a consumer have stored value sitting outside of a bank to do online transactions. Because that's that's not what they wanted to see. They certainly <laughs> wanted the consumer to keep all of their money inside
0: the bank. So banks are now functioning in a world where pretty much everyone is at least as well connected as they are. Your average smartphone has about a thousand times the computer power as the original mainframe that would have popped into a bank in 1965. Mm-hmm. And so a consumer can literally run an entire bank or the functions of an entire bank inside of an app on their smartphone now. Does that mean that the bank now sees its customers as branches? As the physical branches disappear, does that mean that the app is becoming the branch?
1: Definitely. And, uh, you know, in your intro, you referenced uh, the work of the World Bank. Mm. And so um, what we see in many emerging markets that the phone is actually an extension of the infrastructure that exists in the country. Whether that's telco infrastructure, banking infrastructure, the the phone becomes that branch. The phone becomes the way to interact with the consumer. There's no other means to do that unless you have a fleet of 1,000 people on motorbikes running around. And that still exists also, but... The phone really is the game changer in all these markets, and I guess the category
0: example of that is the project called Mpesa from Kenya. Yes. So back in two thousand and seven, and this started as you know just an experiment. They allowed Kenyans to transfer funds by text message back and forth, and they would go to I guess the person they'd go to to buy mobile phone minutes, mm-hmm. and they'd make a deposit there, and it would be put into a big holding account, the m account, but they'd get a code and then they could use that code to transfer that money to someone else. And there are a lot of cases in Kenya where someone would be working in Nairobi and would spend an entire day traveling on a bus back to the village cash in hand to give it to someone in the village so that they could live and then take the bus back. And beyond the fact that it's just a lot of time out of there, it's not safe because these people would get robbed yes. all the time too. And so
1: although it was an experiment, it took off, right? Yes. And uh, I've been fortunate to have been to Kenya a few times in the last year or so. And there are MPESA pesa outlets uh, dotted all over the place. And and these aren't outlets that are dedicated m shops. These are convenience stores. These are... People selling food for lunch. You know, it's like if you have some kind of street presence mm. in Kenya, you're probably going to also be an M-Pesa agent. So, it's kind of like ta- in the fact that we have
0: tap and go basically everywhere in yeah. Australia now, except it's just anyone and you don't need a fancy smartphone. This is
1: just a regular exactly. cheap phone. Exactly. Because in these markets, smartphone penetration is still quite low. So, you don't need fancy new technology. All you need is a good idea. Yes, definitely good idea that meets the local requirement would M-Pesa model work in Australia because it's interesting we've not really seen a mobile wallet model roll out here um I think M-Pesa fills that gap around the unbanked and around penetration and access that the banks in all these emerging markets struggle with okay hold that thought we're talking to Andrew Davis on the next billion seconds and we'll be right
0: back And we're back talking to financial futurist Andrew Davis. So, Andrew, in five-ish years' time, pretty much everyone everywhere is going to be walking around with a smartphone. It's going to be relatively powerful, nice, cheap for people in the, in the developing world, expensive for f- folks in Australia who can afford yeah. them. Lots and lots of power on those devices. And at the same time, we're seeing this contraction of physical banking into something that's just more and more purely digital. Only half the world has bank accounts right now. And so we're going to be in a state where, say, 5 billion adults have smartphones and maybe only 2.5 billion have banking accounts. Are we going to see a sort of tipping point where the other 2.5 billion more or less suddenly get banking accounts because they have smartphones? And what does that
1: look like? I think the interesting question is... Looking forward, does one need a bank account to get financial services benefit? Uh, okay,
0: so what we're doing is we're separating a bank from the services it's, o- it's offering. Yes.
1: Okay. So, um, again, back to the emerging markets, mm. Africa and so on, there's a lot of focus on agriculture supply chains. Yep. So, I'm a farmer. I have a coffee crop. I take my crop to the local market and I sell that to an agent. The agent at that market buys from 10 other farmers he then consolidates that uh, those purchases and maybe sells to some buyer in the area who ultimately sells to one of the big multinationals. Now, the farmer, I guess, may not always get the best price. The farmer may not always get paid straight away. Mm. But actually now we're seeing the application of digital into these supply chains to mm. streamline that flow, streamline that connectivity, and ultimately the farmer potentially can... Um, get a better price and be paid faster. So the farmer could actually say, look, here's my crop, I want you all to bid on it and I
0: will sell the crop to the highest bidder. Then.
1: Exactly. And also, we're starting to see the multinationals play a more active part in providing assistance to the farmers. Now, assistance could be perhaps pre-purchasing their crops. Mm-hmm. So, that's almost a form of financing. Mm. It can also be about how does the farmer apply better crop management technique to improve um, you know, the, the, uh, the outcome and the, so and it's, the yield. So,
0: it's not just in that sense. It's not just a finance app on the smartphone. No. It's,
1: it's an ecosystem app.
0: It's an ecosystem app, but it's also about helping that person grow their wealth because that's actually yes. good for the, for the grower, for, for the manufacturer up the,
1: the food chain. Exactly. Cause, uh, and I think there's a lot greater understanding now um, by large corporate that uh, you know, they need to be more proactive around their supply chains. Uh, And they need to better understand and look after the small participants that uh, maybe two or three steps down the supply chain. Mm -hmm.
0: And, of course, it would have been very expensive. You're talking about 100 people or 1,000 people going around on motorbikes somewhere. It would have been really expensive to do that even a few years ago. But if you have everyone with a smartphone and everyone with an app (coughs) that you've written to be able to help them, then that changes the economics around these relationships.
1: Exactly. So the cost to engage, the cost to serve drops dramatically. Uh, and we even see smartphones being used now to, like, take photos of crops. So the, mm. the purchaser can predetermine the quality of what they're going to be seeing at the market a, a week or two later. So it's just, you know, and, of course, the data that that generates and, uh, is quite amazing, too. And the, and then what does that mean for whole new services that you can uh, build around that data?
0: And, of course, then if I'm actually sort of invested in, say, the chocolate futures market, yes. I'd actually want to take a look at those photos, too, so that I could know how I'm going to hedge or the chocolate chocolate prices. I'm mentioning this because I believe that there was a recent collapse in the, the cocoa crop mm-hmm. in one of the I think Cameroon and the price of chocolate has shot up and it's just it's one of those things where but you would see that coming. Yes. In exactly. in this situation. Well
1: you could see that coming and if you saw it early enough you could actually yeah. help to address it before it becomes an issue before the crop fails
0: right exactly so you now have this idea that what was starting off as just a way to sort of bring people into a financial system mm. is actually bringing them into an ecosystem of prosperity that that's that's maybe more of an ideal
1: exactly because at the end of the day money and finance is just an enabler it's it's a it's a, a sidebar to really why People live and and do work and 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 interact with each other, so uh, it's not the be on on end all.
0: You know that that's, that's going to be fine for Africa. It's going to be fine for the developing world. Here mm. in Australia, we're also seeing now payments are starting to change a little bit. Right, we've gotten we we've, we've sort of moved from this idea of fpos to now tap and go. I was recently mm. in Perth. Mm. No one is using cash in downtown Perth or anywhere. Everyone is just tapping now, and so it felt almost a little future. Where is our payments going over the next little while, and how does the bank, how is what we think of as a bank involved in that?
1: A couple of things are happening. One is that we are seeing that payments are becoming digital, so and the card is a great vehicle to achieve that. Uh, and related to that, we have, of course, transportation cards now around Australia, which uh, perhaps as a market we were late into that space, but most people in New South Wales or at least Sydney carry an Opal card. Mm. I think someone had an Opal card chip embedded under their skin recently. Yes. So I think there's, there's the first step around familiarity and customer behaviour. Uh, and so we're seeing that increase all the time. The other thing is as a result of that, we see an explosion of the volume of transactions and a resulting reduction in the average size of a transaction. So in the past, perhaps if I went to get a coffee, a 3 or $4 coffee, I'd probably reach in my pocket what coins have i have got or a $5 note, because uh, you'd perhaps look a bit uh, silly to pull out your card and want to tap. But these days, it's not uncommon to do that. No. Um, and we see, of course, uh, ads on TV suggesting if you do reach in your pocket for cash, you're actually slowing things up. <laughs> so we're seeing explosion in the volume of transactions. We're seeing a reduction in the average values for those reasons. But what does it mean in the future in terms of where might my money reside mm. that I want to access that for undertaking a transaction? And in this day of globalization, we have banks in Australia that have multi-currency accounts. More and more people are trading foreign exchange. Maybe they have assets offshore. So actually in the future, you know, could I go and pay for my coffee and uh, somehow draw against a US dollar account? Or pay in Bitcoin. We know, of course, in Australia, there are merchants that accept Bitcoin. You know, we're also seeing this broadening out of the the number of choices. You know, of course, when we talk about card, wind the clock back five plus years, most people would have interpreted that to be a credit card. Mm. But actually today, when we talk about card, uh, there's a large volume of transactions that are debit card based in Australia. So even this notion of what does it mean to have a piece of plastic in your wallet is uh, changing. So, you you know, you 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 use the B word, the Bitcoin Mm -hmm. word, and I actually want
0: to sort of take this a little differently because you're talking about all these different currencies in play. The Australian dollar is still very much a physical currency. Yeah, the banks and the Reserve Bank, they keep it in their ledgers, but, you know, Mm -hmm. there's banknotes and there's coins. And we don't have anything that's sort of fully digital. Mm. the same way that a uh, Bitcoin is fully digital. Mm-hmm. Do you reckon that this is where we're going with these currencies? Will the Reserve Bank or some other big, very well-respected Reserve Bank come up with a
1: digital coin at some point? Yes, I think so. In fact, it's already happened in Latin America. I'm struggling to think Ecuador. of the country. Yes, where they've announced a digital currency. Right. I think partly to uh, remove their independence on the US dollar. And I was just reading the press in the last twenty four hours, some reference to low volatility cryptocurrencies being tied to local currency for use. Uh, They're called stable coins. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So I think you know, th- this will happen, but the challenge will be then as a consumer, I've got all these different forms of value. Right. How do I manage that? How do I decide when I'm paying for my coffee, which which item do I use? And but my view is, I think ultimately, technology itself will help with that. We can have apps and services that understand us as people, understand our risk profile, and can make some judgment on our behalf when we do that transaction.
0: Okay, so let's tie this all together. What we were talking about with apps in the developing world that helps these farmers prosper, and, and just as small and medium-sized enterprises generally helps them prosper. Mm-hmm. Will we see what we think of as a bank in Australia become something that's more focused around the prosperity of the people who belong to that bank using all of the techniques that are at hand for being able to analyze to be able to take that open pool of data and everything that happens as I pull that card out that the bank should actually be able to tell
1: me okay today the best currency to use for this is I think there's the potential for that but at the moment uh, there are others who are more proactively working on those solutions rather than banks themselves so there are startups out there that are much more ahead of the curve in looking at the data and the possibility of data the thing they struggle with is they don't have access to the data today but you know we just saw in the last few months westpac run a data accelerator here in sydney so they basically went to the startup community and said here's two years worth of transaction data who can come up with some great ideas around new services that we can take to market that makes use of the data that we have already in the organization. So are the banks going to be overrun
0: by these startups? Because that's one version of the future where the banks are just simply get a a death of a thousand cuts because Mm -hmm. everyone's taking one service away from them and the banks have nothing left in their core. Or do the banks simply gobble these things up and and they become these sort of
1: Frankensteins? I think it's forcing the banks to change the way they behave, change the way they approach innovation and product development. My view is I think in the future, banks as a brand will be a, become a marketplace. So I may bank with a bank as in terms of a primary financial relationship, but that bank, for whatever reason, may not want to or be able to provide all the services that I need or expect of them. So actually, why not have that bank through their brand, make available services of other parties under the banner of that bank's brand and maybe with some notion of additional trust and reliability. So it's almost like an Amazon model where there are many retailers who are selling products through Amazon
0: yes. because they know that they have access to Amazon's payments facility and storage and
1: warehouse and delivery and all of that. Sure. And we, there's some examples already in the market today. So if you look at CBA with its Albert Terminal for merchants... It's a basically a tablet. CBA has opened up that platform to allow third parties to develop apps that sit on the Albert terminal that then provide additional services to the merchants that use that terminal.
0: Basically, what CBA is doing is saying, look, at you trust us, we're the big bank. So therefore, if you write an app here, you inherit our
1: trust for all of the users. All yes, right. and no doubt CBA puts those third-party apps through lots of assessment and testing security checking, et cetera. Certainly
0: that's what you'd want to have happen. Yes. So, I mean, this brings us back now
1: to this idea
0: of trust. If the bank is the, the pointy end of where we're focusing our trust mm-hmm. because they're taking care of our money and they're now taking care of all of this data which may or may not become open at some point, does the bank start to offer services around protecting the rest of my data? Because, you know, we're now living in an age where Facebook has been giving data to everyone and who knows what other data is known about me. And I, I'm going to need at some point someone to take care of that data for me and it's going to be hard for me to do it myself.
1: Is that what the bank is going to be I think there's for? a strong potential for that. Uh, we saw here in Australia uh, a few years ago Our CBA rolled out a personal data locker. A service uh, as an extension of their internet banking platform. I uh, know, was some size like 5 gig or something that the consumer could sign up for, and the bank really didn't care what you put in there. It could mm. be copies of your passport, your favourite music tunes, whatever. You could argue it was almost the equivalent of a digital safe custody box. So, yes, I think this is the new opportunity for banks as there's more emphasis going forward, arguably put on data than there is on money then where and do I keep my data? How do I protect it? And what are the services that I can make use of to be able to share that out, to collect it, to uh, compare it and so on? And so we come now full circle from this idea of a bank
0: as a branch with a vault that's got a great big lock on it Mm -hmm. to this idea of a bank that's invisible, but everywhere and on your smartphone and is securing your data. Andrew Davis, thank you very much for being on this episode of The Next Billion Seconds. Thank you, Mark. We're in a transition period between all things physical and all things data. And we're probably going to be in this transition period for a long time. Maybe, who knows, for the rest of time where we are seeing money and data and information and security all start to become different sides of the same story. And somehow at the middle of that story is what we think of as a bank. We'll be linking to Andrew Davis's details, so be sure to look for them on our brand new website, nextbillionseconds.com. Has our conversation gotten you to thinking financially? If so, we'd like to hear from you. Drop by our website, send us a message on Twitter, tell us what you want to know about the future, and we'll do our best to bring it to you in a future episode. In the next episode of this second series of The Next Billion Seconds, we'll be speaking to philosopher and author Eric Davis about why we believe what we believe And why we have a need to believe that every new technology promises a utopia that solves all our problems. That's next time on The Next Billion Seconds. The Next Billion Seconds is recorded for Podcast One. Recording and production assistance is provided by Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Audiogram by D. Hawala. Music by Kirk Godfrey. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or the Podcast One app. This is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening.